0: Good morning, y'all. Morning again. All right, so we're in John chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open your Bibles to there. We're continuing our series where we're walking through the book of John together. We're looking at the person of Christ, trying to get a clearer picture of who Jesus is and what he has for us, what his, who he is as a person, who he is as a Savior, who he is as a God, and what our response and our interaction with him should look like. And so in order for us to kind of know where we're going this morning, we gotta kind of know where we've been a little bit um, so that we know what, what's going on. Last week we had Senior Sunday and, and the seniors did the whole service and we kind of took a break from this from this series for, for a week and now we're back in it. And so two weeks ago, Scott brought the message and he walked us through the beginning of chapter 11 where it talks about Lazarus's death and his ultimate Resurrection through the power of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus, knowing that his good friend Lazarus was sick, that his good friend Lazarus was probably going to die, took his time getting to the town of Bethany where Lazarus was. And finally, once he got there, Lazarus had been dead for a number of days. And Jesus, letting them know that he is in control of everything, tells Martha specifically, He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who can bring life back from the dead. I'm the one that can give new life. And with that, he turns to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus comes out, and the people are amazed that a dead man is now walking. In the meantime, the people who were there see what God is doing see what God is doing, and react. And that's where we're picking up in John chapter 11, as they see what God is doing, and then they react. And so for us today in this place, before we dig in to what God has for us today, I just want to pray over this text, over us as a church body and over myself, that God might speak loud, because I think he's got something cool to say to us this morning. I think he's got something cool to say. And so I want to ask him to say it loud. So let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you for being a God of love, for being a God of of grace, for being a God who has the power to bring life back from the dead. And so this morning, God, as we hear from your word, as we hear from your word this morning, God, we pray, we pray that you speak loud. Because we know that you can. This word is your very breath. And so, God, we ask that you speak loud into our hearts and into our souls. That you might point us towards redemption. That you might remind us of our redemption and, uh, and what our response should be in light of that. That you might speak loud to our souls. That our souls might be stirred up with a new affection for you this morning that our souls might be stirred up with a new affection of you, a new desire to know you more. And so, God, I ask that you speak. I ask that you speak loud. I ask that you speak through your word and use me, use me this morning, God, to say what you want to say. And all God's people said, amen. John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. Here, I'll let you swap these while I'm, while I'm going. John chapter 11, starting in verse 45, says this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Many of the Jews, therefore, verse 45, who had come with Mary saw what Jesus did and they believed in him. People who were there saw what Jesus had done and they believed in what Jesus said. And they, 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 they can't not see what Jesus had done. It's not like they can say Jesus didn't do this thing because a dead man who'd been dead for a number of days is now alive. Right? They can't say that Jesus didn't raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was just hanging out in there for a while because there was a stench that came out of that tomb of death. And Lazarus walked out of that stench into life. They can't argue that Jesus isn't doing what he's doing. Some of the people went to the Pharisees, knowing the Pharisees would have a problem with this, and told them what Jesus had done. Verse 47, so the chief priests... And the Pharisees gathered the council. That's the Sanhedrin. That's kind of the governing body of the religious group of Jews. They gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. We can't deny that he's doing these things. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will take away both our place and our nation. They have a problem the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the chief priests or the Sadducees have a problem because Jesus is doing some pretty amazing things in their midst and they've seen them with their own eyes and they've heard about them from eyewitness accounts and they've smelt death and seen life. And they have a problem because Jesus is gaining followers. If we let him carry on like this, everybody's gonna believe in him. So what are we to do? They have a problem. You see, in this time, in this place, the the, the city or the area of Israel, the territory, is not governed by the Israelites. It's governed by Rome. The Rome, the Roman army is in charge. And because of this, they know that the Roman army at any moment can come and squash them. Take away any power, any authority they have, take away all rights they might have to worship. They can take it away in an instant. That's why we have Pontius Pilate, the governor, he's Roman. And so they're worried here that if Jesus keeps gaining followers and gaining power that Rome all of a sudden will come and squash them out. They're not worried about them squashing Jesus so much but they're worried about losing whatever political or religious power they have over their people and they're also worried about losing their nation. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place And our nation. You see, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they have a problem, and it's a political problem. It's a political problem. They have a problem. Moving on, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas, the high priest that year, says, you guys don't know a thing yeah, we have a problem. Jesus is a problem. He's reigning in, He's gaining in power, gaining in stature. More and more people are following him. But it's better that He dies so that our nation lives. Not our nation lives in a spiritual sense, but our nation in a physical, actual thing. A political nation survives. Their problem is a political problem, and to kill Jesus is a political answer to that problem. It's a political answer. It's not a spiritual problem that they're even understanding that they have. It's a real, true, honest political problem. So they have a problem, and Caiaphas comes up with the solution. Jesus needs to die so that our nation survives. Jesus needs to die so that our nation survives. But in the midst of this, in the midst of this saying this, Caiaphas, without even understanding it, prophesies a bigger picture, a bigger spiritual picture of what Jesus is. You see, mankind has a problem as well. We have a problem. We're separated from God by sin, separated from God by choosing to live a life that is not even worthy to be in the presence of God. By whatever sin you might have, whatever errors you might have in your life, it's separated us from God. And Caiaphas says it's better for one man to die than the whole world. So he says this on a political area, but he also says it over a spiritual world as well. It's better that Jesus dies so that the world might live. You see, the chief priests and the Pharisees had a problem, a political problem, and they had a political solution, but their political solution is also the same solution for mankind's problem. Do you see how God is lining things up? God is lining things up so that Jesus' death on the cross for us can happen. He's making a way. Rome is governing over the political, politically in this area, and God is making a way so that Jesus can make his way to the cross on our behalf. The political problem and the spiritual problem have the same solution, and it's Jesus. And it's Jesus. Verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Jesus heads out of town, knowing that they have a plan, they have a solution to their problem now. Jesus heads out of town. Why? Not because he was afraid, but because his death for us is on his timeline, not on Caiaphas' timeline. Not on the high priest's timeline, not on the Pharisee's timeline. It's on his timeline. So he heads out to Ephraim. Ephraim is about 12 miles from Jerusalem. 12 miles doesn't seem that far today because we just get in our car and it's like, you know, what, a 15 minute drive to go 12 miles? It's not a big deal. But back then, 12 miles was far enough that you could hide out. And so Jesus heads out 12 miles away knowing full well what Caiaphas' plan was. Why does he know? Because Caiaphas makes it known to people. In verse 57, they'd given the orders that if anybody knew where he was, they should let him know so they could arrest him. Their plan was known. Their plan to take care of Jesus was known. And everybody knew it. The people in Jerusalem preparing for Passover, preparing to celebrate Passover, are looking for Jesus and saying, do you think he's even gonna show up? Would he dare show his face? in this town, during this celebration, with all this happening? With a wanted poster, hanging on the town bulletin board? Would he even dare show up? They're wondering if he's gonna come. And everybody knew what was coming next. Everybody knew what was coming. There are two problems, a political problem and a spiritual problem. And there's one solution, and it's Jesus. The Pharisees don't want to lose power, and God wants to redeem the world. And Jesus is the answer. And then we jump into chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a beautiful story, and it's told in a couple places in the gospel. It's told here, and then in Matthew, and then in Mark. And in, in each of those recounts, the story is slightly different. But we're gonna stick to this text and, until a little bit later. So in John chapter 12, verse one, it says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was, was one of those reclining with him at the table. So Jesus heads to Bethany. Now Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. So he makes a 10 mile journey from Ephraim to Bethany, knowing full well that just two miles away, they're plotting to kill him. Jesus is heading towards his death and he knows it. He heads into Bethany to the house of his friends and they prepare, prepare a meal for him. Six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. That would be the Saturday before his death. The Saturday before his death. The Saturday before Palm Sunday or the triumphant entry that we'll hear about next week. The Saturday before that. Not long for this world is Jesus. And he heads into Bethany and they give a dinner for him there. And his close friends are there, Martha and Lazarus. Verse 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Mary walks into the room with a full understanding of what's going on in Jesus's life. The full understanding of the political problem that the chief priests and the Pharisees have because they've made it known what they want to do with Jesus. And she walks into a room with her close friend, with her close friend, possibly the last time she might see him, and she wants to give him a gift. She wants to give him a gift. Not because she's afraid he might die. No, because he's promised her new life. She's seen it in her brother coming back from the dead. She's heard it from his mouth. I'm the resurrection and the life. He's promised her something more. He's promised her new life. And she wants to give him a gift, but not just any gift, not a gift card, right? Not a gift card. She gives him an extravagant gift. She gives him an extravagant gift to the solution to her problem, the problem of separation from God, the solution is Jesus. She can't help but want to worship him extravagantly. She can't help it, so she takes the ointment, nard. Nard is an Arabian perfume. It's very expensive. 300 denarii is a year's wages, a year's wages. Whatever you put on your tax return last year, as this was my salary, that's how much this cost. All the work you did in 2018 for a half a liter, perfume and she takes this perfume and she opens it and she pours it out on the feet of Jesus in an extravagant way of saying you are worth this all that I have everything I can offer you here it is she takes her hair out which is not done she takes her hair and she wipes his feet clean with this perfume The other accounts say that she took the perfume and broke the neck of the bottle. Not just uncorking it or unscrewing the cap, but she broke the neck so that she could pour it out. So she could pour it out with meaning, not with trickles, but with meaning. And it says that she poured it on his head and anointed his head with it. And then she moved towards his feet. She worshiped him extravagantly. She had a problem. She had a problem, and Jesus is her solution, and her response is extravagance. Why? Because Jesus' solution to her problem is extravagant. His love for her is extravagant. His love for her sends him to the cross. And his love for us is the same. His love for us is the same. Our sin has been forgiven. Our unfaithfulness, our greed, our lust, our hatred, our anger, everything that gives us shame or guilt or pain that separates us from God has been taken care of by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. What's our response? What's our response? Is it to just say, Good job, Jesus. Or to come on a Sunday morning and sit and hear and go home and not do anything else the rest of the week and then come back again and sit and hear and go home. Why? Surrender to Him. Mary's gift to Jesus of extravagant love is beautiful, it's beautiful. And so often we come and we think, why would I wanna do these things? Why would I wanna give my money or my time or my home, why would I wanna give up my home to help other people? Or why would I wanna lose control of my life? Or why would I wanna surrender anything to anything? Why would I wanna give up any control And our response is not extravagant most times. I'll be honest, my response is not extravagant most of the time. In light of the gospel, in light of knowing that Jesus died for me, I walk through this world taking it for granted every day. And this passage has broken my heart. How do I live extravagantly? How do I surrender my life to God fully? I don't have a practical one, two, three, this is how you do it, because that's not how it works. Mary saved perfume for years and poured it out on her Savior in a moment. How do I give myself extravagantly to God? And my hope for us today as we walk out of this place isn't that we walk out going, yes, I'm going to just go do extravagant things for Jesus. But it's that there's a stirring in our heart to recognize ever a little bit more every day of what Jesus has done for us. And that our response needs to reflect that well. And not just taking it for granted, not just walking through this world like nothing happened, but that the Savior of the world died on a cross so that we might live, so that we might be brought back from death to life, so that the stench of death is no longer on us. But the love, the extravagant love of a Savior has been poured over us. And yet I walk through this world like nothing happened. God, stir in our hearts, stir in our hearts to love you extravagantly. There's a book I read over Lent, over the, the Lent season, called The Passion of the King of Glory. It's by Russ Ramsey. And I wanna read you an excerpt of it. What Russ did is he took, he's a pastor in Nashville, and he took, um, the gospel message, the story of Jesus' life from birth to death, and he told it in a narrative form, meaning he looked at scripture and he then wrote it out in a narrative format. Listen to this. After the meal, Simon and his guests settled in for some conversation. The levity was good for the disciples' hearts. Through Jesus' more recent actions and words, he had led his followers into a deepening understanding of what he meant when he spoke of his coming arrest and execution. At first, his statements on the matter were vile, either by design or by the disciples' own dullness of mind and heart. But in light of his most recent clashes with the temple authorities, those words had taken on flesh and come alive to them. Though the feast was festive, there lurked a sober foreboding in the back of the disciples' minds, as though they were nearing the end of something, and they were uncertain of what that end would bring. While they were climbed around Simon's table, Mary, Lazarus's sister, came into the room carrying a stone-hewn bottle. She handled the flask as though it were a rare and precious jewel, knowing that it was her, knowing what it was, her brother leaned forward in his seat, his sister had been saving this bottle for a long time. Many times she told Lazarus and Martha what she meant to do with it. The, steel st- the sealed stone bottle was made of Egyptian alabaster and it held a pound of an exotic Arabian perfume called nard. The costly scent fetched close to a day's wage for a day's supply, and so it belonged mostly to the wealthy and to the powerful. Arabian nard was the scent of opulence, the fragrance of those whose needs had been met and they wanted for nothing. Over the years, Mary's family had saved a half liter of the exotic fragrance, equal to a full year's wage, and now Mary was its keeper. Mary took his feet on the floor beside Jesus and turning the bottle in her hands as the men talked, gripping the bottle with both hands, she broke the stone neck and the scent of kings wafted up, filling the room with a fragrance that brought an instinctively reverent silence. Then with every eye on her now, she began to pour the oil-based perfume on Jesus' head so that it saturated his scalp filtered into the sides of his beards and wicked through his garments onto his shoulders and back. After this, she used what remained to anoint his feet. This was an intimate moment between friends. Jesus had given Mary so much, not only by saving her brother, but by also being her friend Though her sister Martha expressed her love through cooking and serving, Mary was a woman of extravagance when it came to giving the gift of unhurried time. And the perfume gave her all the time with Jesus and she wanted to spend all of it. Many regarded the perfume Mary poured over Jesus' head and feet as her only security for the future. They immediately began to question her judgment But this was no whim. It was Mary's response to what Jesus had given her. He had brought her brother back from the dead and then promised to do the same with her. And this promise, she sensed that Jesus meant to give her something more and he wouldn't stop until he was finished. So in return, she gave Jesus everything that she had. She anointed her king's head with the oil in the presence of his enemies and made lovely the feet of this one who had brought her so much good news. Jesus now put everything in context of his pending death. The scent that covered Jesus' body filling the room would remain on him for the next several days before the scented oils dissipated and were spent. He knew well what these days would bring. And Mary's perfume would stay with him through everything that Judas had set into motion. His arrest, his trial, death and burial. Judas and the chief priest's plan would not be able to escape Mary's gift. Every lash of a whip would release the scent of nobility into the air. With every blow to his face, every rub of a crossbeam, every tearing away of a garment from a wound, the scent of opulence would fill the air and linger wherever he went, as though a king had passed through this violent world and left behind his spirit. The scent of opulence followed Jesus from this night to the cross. Mary's gift went with him to his death, to the solution to the problem, to the saving of the world. Our separation is no longer there if we've said yes to what God has for us. Our separation is gone. What is our response? Do we surrender at all Or do we lay down everything that we have because the Savior of the world died on a tree for us? Today, as we, we're gonna worship here in a minute, and the worship team, you guys can make your way to the, to the stage. We're gonna take a moment to reflect just silently here in a minute of what God has done for us in our lives. And after that time of reflection, we're going to sing a song called No Longer Slaves. And the chorus of the song says this, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And in light of this text, that should be hard to say. God's extravagant love for us means that we are now his children, but are we living like it? Are we trusting him? Are we surrendering to him? Are we giving him our all? Or are we walking through this world blinded to what God is doing in the world amongst us and just continuing to take and take and take? And as we sing this song this morning, we've created these little bookmarks that just have the word extravagance on them. And they're on the tables over here and over here. And we're going to reflect a time silently here, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to sing. And during that song, I ask that you go and grab one of these. These have the scent of pure nard on them. Very gently on them. And what I want you to do is to take that bookmark and place it right here in chapter 12 of your Bible. So that every time you come across this text, you're reminded by the scent of Jesus' love for us. The scent that he took to the cross, a gift that Mary had for him. And it'd be a reminder of what Jesus did for you, but it'd also be a reminder that you need to give extravagantly back to him. That his call for our lives doesn't just mean on Sundays but it means 100% of everything that you have. And I'll be honest with you, this smell takes a little getting used to. It's not the normal sweet smell of perfume. But in a day where sweat and dirt were a common scent and this fills the room, it's a beautiful smell. Let's close our eyes. Just take a moment. Take a moment now. Reflect on what God's done for you. How has he saved your soul? Have you said yes to him? And if you have, What does it look like for you to worship him extravagantly? God, your word is true. And at times, it speaks gently, and at times, it's a double-edged sword. I pray that today, God, your word pierces the souls of your people, that they might be reminded of what you've done for them. They might be reminded of your love for them, that they might be reminded of the power that you have to overcome death. And that we might stand and say, God, we love you and we praise you and we give you everything that we have because you're worth it. Because of your extravagant love we worship you extravagantly because of your extravagant love we worship you extravagantly not just with our Sundays or our, our, our certain times of the day but with our whole lives God and may the scent of Mary's gift to you remind us of her love for you your love for us and our response to that. So as we worship this morning, speak loud in this place. As we worship this morning, challenge us and shape us. Move in our lives, God. In your name I pray.